0: You are now listening to the June 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of the Spirit, Sermon, in Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of the Spirit.
1: Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcasting listeners, this is Terry Park with Fruit of the Spirit. We have been sharing the characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit as listed in Galatians chapter 5. Today, I would like to discuss the ninth fruit of the Spirit, self-control. People like to celebrate. One thing we like to celebrate is our birthdays. When we do, we usually do the celebration with close friends and families. But there is one birthday that the whole world celebrates. That is the birth of Christ. Yet, the world seems to celebrate this occasion less for its true meaning, but more as a means to commercialize the season through the media. Our Lord came to this world because of sin. He came to save us and to reconcile us back to God. He came to rescue you and me from sin and its consequences so that we could be redeemed as God's children and enjoy eternal life. Therefore, when we come upon the day people celebrate for birth of Christ, it should be a time for us to reflect on God's love for sending Him. We should offer gratitude and praise and renew our commitment to obedience. It is important for us to quiet ourselves and contemplate on Jesus to be grateful to Him. Spending time with Jesus, who is the main character of His birthday, should be a natural thing. But to truly enjoy his presence and be grateful for him, we need to set aside time for him, away from the busyness and noise. Our life is full of options. It is difficult to make the best decision by considering only our immediate needs. The best choices for us mostly come from looking into the future. For our health, we choose less tasty but healthy foods instead of gratifying our taste buds with foods that might not be so healthy. Our daily life is a continuation of these small choices. These small choices make our day, year, and lifetime. It is very important for us to make the best choice in God's eyes, and for that, self-control is necessary. Self-control means having carefully determined goals. It means overcoming our desires and temptations. It means quieting ourselves in the midst of various types of celebrations or worldly people like to do that often accompany carousing and unruliness. And finally, it means making the best choices to achieve those goals while constantly striving to achieve those goals. Throughout the Bible, God teaches us the importance of self-control for our bodies and minds. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 28 teaches us about the importance of self-control through the saying, one who does not control their own spirit it's like a city without walls. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19-21, the Apostle Paul speaks of the reckless and undisciplined life as being fleshly. When we knowingly make harmful choices and act according to our desires, instead of submitting to the lordship of God in our lives, we surrender ourselves to our own selfish desires, which leads to a devastating reality filled with downfall and shame. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20 through that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have received from God. Thus, we should honor God with our bodies. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 23-27 to teaches us the importance of self-control by using the example of an athlete. Athletes have a clear goal of winning, the upcoming game and receiving a prize. So they choose to restrain from doing what they want and give their best effort towards training for the game. They have their determined goals and they are making right choices now. Paul tells us how he sacrificed his body to participate in the gospel he preaches. He was able to restrain himself because he had such a sacred and certain goal. We who have become Christians through faith in Jesus also have the most precious and certain goal, and we must live in order to achieve it. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the main purpose of life? And the answer is, the main purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In order to achieve this purpose that God has given us in life, we must seek God's wisdom, constantly resist our own desires and cravings, and obey God moving forward. May the fruit of such self-control, which is now presented to you as characteristic of the Holy Spirit, continuously appear in our lives and make our lives one that brings glory to God. Until next time, goodbye!
2: Lord Jesus, I long to be on thee forever to live
0: A sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Christ is the Foundation. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
3: We are in a series called Foretold. It's our Advent series. We're looking at Old Testament prophecies and how they were fulfilled and have been fulfilled in Christ. And uh, in way of review, last week where we were, we looked at Genesis, The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It's the greatest, biggest, best spoiler alert in all of human history. It's right there in Genesis chapter three, Jesus wins. Amen. Jesus wins. And the takeaway was this, live like you know the end of the story because you do. You're on the winning team. You've been called by God and you are part of his kingdom and jesus wins if you miss that message or any of these you can catch them online or on our youtube page and make sure to like and subscribe as well well if you have ever lived in a house that has had a bad foundation then you're going to be able to empathize with what i'm about to say in 1983 my family was living in san mateo california we loved where we lived i did and we had no plans on moving that is until our house which was atop of a hill because if you know northern california is very hilly began to slide off its foundation I was only 13 years old at the time, so I didn't fully appreciate what was happening. But I do remember getting under the house with my dad with floor jacks to jack up the foundation so that it wouldn't keep moving. I didn't understand. With four kids married, a mortgage, the whole nine yards, and a house that was sliding off its foundation, could you imagine being a father and trying to carry that burden? Well, we had to hire lawyers, which they did. I remember the lawyers coming to our house, and we won the case company that built the house had to buy it back from us, which allowed us to move. And we moved to Danville, California, just across the bay. And as you might have guessed, when we bought our new house, we had that foundation thoroughly checked. We really did. Uh, My dad even had soil samples taken to make sure that we were getting a house that was built on a solid foundation. The importance of a solid foundation was a lesson that I learned first as a 13-year-old. And I wonder... I wondered at the time, and I wonder, you know, it's like, why did I, why did I go through that? Why did my family go through that? And I think part of the reason is for sermons like this, that God works all things. It's funny how God works things out. That I would learn, if, even before I was saved, I, hadn't been, I wasn't saved at this point, but God was teaching me a lesson about foundations. And with each passing year, I've only come to appreciate that more and more. Ironically, when we buy a house, The last thing we think about is probably the first thing that we should think about, and that is the foundation, right? When we buy a house, we wanna know well, is it upgraded? What's the kitchen like this? What's that like? Is the roof leak, right? And the last thing we tend to think about is the foundation, right? But it's probably the first thing that we should think about. Literally, the next time it rains and your roof is leaking, stop and thank God that it's just a leaky roof and not a bad foundation, amen? Because when you have, I can tell you from firsthand experience, when you have foundation problems, you have a world of problems. Just out of curiosity, has anybody ever owned a structure or a house or anything that has had a bad foundation that can empathize with me? There's a few of you. Thank you. We'll start a support group after this service because if you've never had it, it's a scary thing for sure. Now, the reason I tell you this is that time and again throughout the Old Testament, God foretold a day when he was going to lay a precious stone, a cornerstone that would become the sure foundation of a new and glorious temple that he was going to build. And as we're going to see, when God lays a foundation, you can bet there's going to be no flaws. Amen? So church, it's my honor to take us to three specific prophecies in the Old Testament today, beginning in Isaiah. Hear the word of God this morning. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. In Psalm 118, we read this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then back to Isaiah, because he takes this whole theme of a a sure foundation and a cornerstone, and he takes it in a little bit different direction. He says this, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Amen. Again, church, I present to you the word of God this morning. So let me give you a little background. We'll help make sense of what's being said here. So when God called the nation of Israel up out of Egypt, they were to be a holy nation and a light to the world. But as we know, this wasn't the case. The Israelites were often falling headlong into sin and idolatry, and the leaders of Israel were often corrupt and worthless. In a very real sense, and this is so very important get this Israel proved to be an insufficient foundation on which to build anything spiritually significant. That's important. The nation of Israel proved to be an insufficient foundation on which to build anything spiritually significant. So, what does God do? God foretells of a day. That he will lay a new foundation, a cornerstone, and he will do it by calling his own son up out of Egypt. Remember, everything in the Old Testament, they're types and shadows. They're pointing forward to something better. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they were a type or shadow of something better that would one day come up out of Egypt. And we read about this in the birth of Christ, Matthew chapter 2. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Where Israel failed when they came up out of Egypt, Christ would succeed when he came up out of Egypt. He is true Israel. And it is in Christ that we see these Old Testament prophecies about a sure foundation, a cornerstone, being fulfilled in Christ. So church, hear the fulfillment of these prophecies from the pen of the Apostle Peter. Again, I present to you the Word of God today. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, listen to this, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here's the fulfillment, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the believers living in the first century would have immediately been able to understand the significance of what was being said. Because in ancient times, those constructing buildings would often cut giant stones out of quarries, sometimes, listen to this, weighing 50 to 100 tons, one single stone. And then they would craft these stones, these massive stones, and arrange them together These structures are so solid, were so solid and are so solid, so secure that many of these structures still stand to this very day. They're built with solid foundations of stone. The Parthenon in Greece, I've been there. Why is it still standing? It's built with solid foundations of stone. And if you go to Jerusalem, which we're going to go here, we're taking a hundred people here in just a couple of months, we're going to stand right here. I literally have a picture of me standing here in 2007, right in that very place. That's the corner of the Temple Mount. And it still stands today. The Temple, of course, which stood upon it is gone, but the Temple Mount is still there. And you can see these are huge stones, but they're not even as big as some of the ancient stones that we have examples of. The cornerstone of any ancient building was the stone that the engineers used to set all the proper angles for the rest of the building. It was the plumb line for both the horizontal and vertical lines of the structure. As such, it had to be a perfect, solid, secure stone on which to build. It had to be perfect in every way. Does that ring a bell? It kind of sounds like what Isaiah said Jesus would be. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a stone. Not just any stone, a tested stone. It has been examined and found worthy. There's no cracks in it. There's no flaws in it. It's perfect. It's the perfect stone on which to build. It's a precious stone of unequaled value. And because of that, it is a sure foundation. It's no wonder that we see Jesus saying things like this in the New Testament. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. Rock. And the rains fell. Now, I want you to know, a couple of weeks ago, as I began to prepare this, I said, Lord, if you could have it rain on the day that I did this, this would be even better. They say the prayers of a righteous man availeth myself, you know, who knows. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Christ is truly the perfect foundation stone on which God is building his eternal temple. And Peter makes it abundantly clear that those who trust in Christ and place their feet upon this sure foundation will never be put to shame. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. They see that word shame right there? It's translated in the NASB, that is the New American Standard, as disappointed. Do you want to know why those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame and never disappointed? Because Christ is a solid rock, an immovable stone, steady, strong, perfect, and secure in every way. Those that trust in him will never be shaken. That foundation cannot be shaken. If you plant your feet on the foundations that the world has to offer you, those foundations will be shaken and you will be disappointed, guaranteed, in time. Those foundations will be shaken, but when you plant your feet on the sure foundation of Christ, you will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. Any other cornerstone the world has to offer will ultimately let you down. This is exactly why the first disciples were so adamant about preaching Christ as that cornerstone. Listen to this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, this is important, and here's why. Folks, we are living in a world that is falling apart. But you want to know what? God is building something that won't. Amen? God is building something on a sure foundation, an eternal temple that will last for all eternity. And by God's grace, you and I are part of it. As Peter said, we are living stones in that building. What does that mean? Here's what it means. As living stones in God's temple, our assignment is clear. Stay firmly planted on the sure foundation of Christ. Other churches and other Christians may fall away. They may go plant their feet on other foundations. We are going to keep our feet firmly planted on Christ, the sure foundation. Amen? And on his word. Here we will stand because we know that as the world and its foundations are shaken, this foundation will be just fine. Don't let any person or personality or politician or possession or worldly promise take the place of that true cornerstone and that sure foundation, which is Christ. There is going to come a day, and I'm telling you, the world's foundation, the moral foundation, the economic foundation, the foundations of this world are being shaken. And as they are, Lord willing, there are going to be people that are going to be looking at the foundation they are standing upon and going, I'm looking, is there a better foundation to stand on? And that is when we as the church have the opportunity to go, well, I'm glad you asked. There is a better foundation that you can stand on, a foundation that cannot be shaken. Oh, by the way, that's exactly what the Bible says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken because it's built on the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and always. He is immovable. He is unchangeable. He is a rock on which you can stand and plant your life and build your life and know that what you are building will last for eternity. The foundations of this country and the entire world are being shaken to their core before our very eyes. And you know what you're seeing too, by the way. I really do believe that we are a generation of believers that are living in one of the times that will go down as one of the great times of apostasy in church history. We are watching many churches, faithful churches, and many Christians go plant their feet on other foundations. So be it. No, not us, though. Amen. We're going to stay right here on that foundation that has been solid for 2,000 years. I don't care what the world comes to offer us in terms of a better foundation. It's not better. They may dress it up, they may say it's solid and secure. Come here, stand where we're standing. No thanks. We'll stay right here on this foundation that has lasted for 2,000 years. Now, this precious stone to you and to me will not be precious to everyone. As the Old Testament prophecies foretold and as the New Testament confirms, Jesus proves to be a stumbling stone to many. Peter says it this way. So the honor is for you who believe, that is, that we have Christ as our cornerstone. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The immediate fulfillment of this part of the prophecy lies in the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders. The religious leaders found Christ so offensive that they went so far as accusing him of being demon-possessed and they conspired regularly to put him to death. And that is a powerful reminder of just how much sin can blind the eyes of people. And it is also a powerful reminder that if not for the grace of God, every one of us who are here today and are believers, we would have kept stumbling over Christ if not for the grace of God. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Of course, the religious leaders stumbled over Christ as that cornerstone for a lot of different reasons. Let me give you one example right here. Romans 9 says this, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The religious leaders were trusting in their own righteousness. And here comes Jesus. And he says, Don't trust in your own righteousness. You don't have any. There's no one righteous, no one good. Together we've all become worthless. This is Romans chapter three. Jesus says, Whatever you do, don't trust in yourself. Trust in me. Trust in me. And the religious leaders looked at Jesus and fell flat over him, flat on their face. No, thank you. You're the last person that we will trust in. The religious leaders not only stumbled over Christ and fell flat on their faces, they were continually offended by him because he did things like this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, as do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And these were things that they would carry on to show how righteous they were and how much they were praying. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now, sadly, for the last 2,000 years, men and women in every generation have continued to find Christ a stone in which they stumble all over, a rock of offense, right up to and including this very day. A couple of weeks ago, I told you those door hangers that we made to put on people's doors to invite them to church. I told you a couple of weeks ago, Valley Christians sent us 30 students, like on a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. And we sent them out into the neighborhoods and they put these on everybody's door. And one of the groups got back. It was a group of like five girls. And I said, well, how did it go? And they said, it went great. I said, did anybody get mad at you? And they said, one guy did. It was over here somewhere. And he, they put it on his door. And as they were walking out, it, was, it happened to be the day that the garbage was out. And he came out and he started yelling at them. And he goes, don't ever put this on my door. I am not coming to your church. And he opened the garbage can and he threw it right in. Think about that. Some teenage girls show up to invite you to church and that's your response. But that's because that's how offensive Christ is. People are going to stumble all over him. It's been happening for 2,000 years. But here's the good news. Not everyone is going to be like that. And here's why that is important for you and me. I truly believe what I'm about to tell you. People are desperately looking for something solid on which to build. I know the world has gotten crazy, and for many of us, we're looking at the world and we're going, oh my gosh, don't they get it? Can't they see what we see? And it can be frustrating. But here's the kicker. As the world gets crazy, there are going to be people that are building on what the world is offering them. And they're going to eventually look down at their foundation and go, this foundation's no good. And then they're going to look and go, well, where can I plant my feet? Where is a foundation that is sure that I can plant my feet? And that is the time for the church to shine. Amen. That is the time for us, not in judgment to say, oh, look at you. You were so stupid that you did this. No. Hey, we were there with you. I planted my feet on that foundation in the world as well. And I found it to be what you find it to be a bad foundation, a weak foundation. It has cracks. It has problems. It's sliding off the top of the hill. You can get off that foundation and come to this foundation because it is immovable. It is Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can plant your feet on Him. He does not change. He does not move. He is the rock on which you can build and know that when the wind blows and the world goes crazy and everyone around you is insane, you can stay sane because you are on Christ, the true and solid rock. And by the way, do you want to know where I think we have a real opportunity for this? It's just beginning to manifest itself. I really do mean this. I'm seeing videos of young people who are in tears because they have been told a whole group of lies and they're making decisions for their lives that are in some cases not changeable. And they're regretting, they're already beginning to regret those decisions. And many, I think in the decades ahead, we're going to see many people who are going to look at what they've been told and how to build their lives. And they're going to go, we were lied to. And the foundations that we have built upon are no good. And again, not in judgment or in a mean spirit. And, oh, we told you that was going to happen. But in grace, go, you know what? I was there with you. I was building out in the world just like you. And I found the foundation to be just like you. No good. Come over here. Come over here and put your feet on a foundation that is immovable. It is so strong, so secure that the Bible says that it cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Listen, many of you are so grateful that you are born in the United States and live in this country as you should be. Still the greatest country on the face of this planet. But folks, your gratefulness for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken should multiply beyond your thankfulness for this country a trillion fold. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But if you are a believer, you are a part of a kingdom that is going to last forever. You are going to be in paradise with God and the saints that have gone before us and the saints that may come after us, for all eternity, you will live in glory, in paradise, in bliss. No sin, no suffering, perfection. We have one job, one assignment in this generation as Christians, it is this, stay firmly planted on that strong foundation. The temptations are going to be strong to go put our feet elsewhere. And we're seeing it happen with churches all over the places and Christians. Christians are partnering with the world and saying, oh, you built a foundation over there? Sure, we'll meet you out there and stand on that foundation. Bad idea. Bad idea. We have one job. Stay firmly planted on that sure foundation, which is Christ. Which, by the way, is exactly what the Bible tells us to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 58. Listen to this. It's such a great verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. You be Immovable. This world is chaotic and there is a ton of moving parts. Our world is moving at warp speed and things are changing at warp speed. What is your assignment? My assignment as believers, be immovable. Amen? You stand on the rock that is Christ. You be proud that you're there. And as everybody thinks, hey, you're crazy for standing there. No, I will not be put to shame. You will. Your foundation will eventually sink. This one won't. Those that trust in Christ will not be put to shame. You will be vindicated for standing on that solid rock. You stand there, even if your family makes fun of you. You stand there, even if culture makes fun of you. You stand there regardless, knowing that you will be vindicated. You will not be put to shame and you will not be disappointed. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. Folks, stand strong on that firm foundation praise God for it. Praise God that you are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It has been advancing for 2,000 years, and regardless of what happens in this world, it is going to keep advancing. And when all is said and done, one kingdom will be left standing, and you and I will be there on that day. Amen? Here's another thing. Whatever you do, don't become discouraged when you have people in your life that keep stumbling over Christ. You have been foretold this would happen. you be patient with them and kind to them, because they, like you, you used to be out there with them. Just pray that God would open their eyes and look for that opportunity when they look down and go, you know, this foundation I'm standing on is no good. That's your opportunity to shine. So if I may be so bold to finish with a question, here it is. As living stones in God's temple, are you firmly planted on that sure foundation of Jesus Christ?
2: your name all over the world, for you've saved us and given us your strength in place of our weakness, and we will proclaim your victory over hell and death. When we face adversity, we will remember that you are our strength, O God, you are our strong tower, and because of that, O oh Lord, we will not be afraid. You, Lord, are the foundation, we will not we will be not afraid. Be
0: Now you can
4: find all the programs of heart and soul on podcasts you can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes search for heart and soul at your itunes stores now
0: following program is called Equipping the Saints.
5: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. when you think of final words, what do you think of? Usually those final words are something that's pretty important. And today we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians, where we're going to have Paul's final exhortations to the Thessalonians. And given he will write another letter, and he is not saying to them, hey, it's the last time I'm going to see you, yet still it is the end of the letter. And these final exhortations are quite important. And again, if you think about that, when you're talking to someone and you're giving them instruction, usually the last thing you say is quite important. And so we're going to see that today as we're going to see Paul's final words to the church here in Thessalonica. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we have been on a wonderful journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. I hope you've been blessed by it. I have. It's amazing. You know, just whatever book we study, it's always the best book while we're doing it. So I'm thankful for it. And so be praying about what best book the Lord has us do next. So with that in mind, we've been looking at the changed lives of the Thessalonians, and their lives were changed by Jesus Christ. They turned to God from idols. They were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing to a church that is less than a year old in the faith. And within that, he has been orphaned from them very early in their relationship with Jesus. And he's very concerned for them. And he has heard about their spiritual condition through Timothy. And he has heard and is so thankful for their response to the gospel. He's thankful for their salvation, that it has been broadcast throughout the area. And I mentioned it earlier, how they turned to God. These were idolaters who turned to Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. And so he's so thankful. And then we came to chapter two, where he had to begin to defend himself You see, there's a spiritual battle out there, and if you preach and teach the Word of God, there are going to be those who try to detract and turn people away because Satan doesn't want the Word of God to go out. And so Paul had to defend himself in the beginning of chapter 2 in the manner in which he came, but he defended it in the context of sharing the truth of God, that they would be built up with that. And again, we see he was so thankful that they responded to the word of God as the word of God, not the word of man, but the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. And we saw the evidence of their salvation, that they were suffering, just like the Jews who came to faith suffered. It was an evidence they had changed lives because they had a new opposition, temporal, but yet a new opposition. And then we saw that the apostle Paul was concerned, and he relays that he had sent Timothy to check in on their faith, to see how they were doing in the faith, And he got good news of their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for one another. And that they still have an affection for the Apostle Paul. Their hearts had not been turned away by the detractors. And Paul was so thankful for that. And then we came to chapter 4. where The Apostle Paul begins to shift gears and speak about those things which concern our walk and pleasing God. And so he desires that they would excel still more in how to walk and please God, that they needed to keep applying biblical instruction, understanding that it's what God's will is for them. And we see that that will is to be sanctified, to be set apart. And so the Apostle Paul begins to share those things in which they are to excel still more in. First of all, they were to excel still more in purity. And then they were to excel still more in love for one another. And then they were to excel still more in hope as they were concerned, rightfully so, being a young church, about believers who had died before Jesus was coming. They were eagerly awaiting his coming, and they had died. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit, shares the wonderful truth that is so comforting that their loved ones are with Jesus, and they're coming first, and they'll be raised first, and that there'll be a great reunion in the air, and so comfort one another with these wonderful words. And then he moves to a new section in chapter 5 to address the issue of the day of the Lord, because they were being persecuted. And we'll see this in Second Thessalonians in the beginning of that book, that they were being persecuted heavily. And some were coming along and saying, maybe you're in the day of the Lord right now. And so Paul has to clarify that that day is not going to overtake you like a thief, but it will overtake them like a thief. You see, we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. And therefore, because we are of the day and not of the night, we should be living that way as we allow Christ to function through us. And then he came to the end of the book, basically, where we have 22 commands. We'll see the end of those today, where the Apostle Paul gives them instruction. And we saw how they were to function in the church, in the body of Christ, in relationship, first of all, to their leaders. They were to appreciate, highly hold them in high esteem, those who work hard, those who oversee them, have charge over them, and those who admonish them. They're to see them with the right attitude. And within that, they are to live at peace with one another. And we saw also how the body is to address issues in the church, issues within the family, that we are all commanded to admonish the unruly, those who are out of step in their walk with Jesus Christ. They're insubordinate. They're not in step. Admonish the unruly. We're to encourage the discouraged and help the faint-hearted. And within that, we're not to return evil for evil, but we're to respond in a godly and patient way when we're treated wrongly. And then we saw God's will for our inner lives. What's his will for what's going on on the inside? We are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Tremendous reality. It can't be simpler than that. It's God's will for us to be joyful in Christ, It's God's will for us to be prayerful all the time. It's God's will for us to be thankful. That's what should be going on on the inside. Not grumbling, complaining, upsetness. Hey, there are difficulties that come upon us, but look at David. He brought him to the Lord on his bed. He poured out his soul before the Lord, and he was able to rejoice. You read those Psalms. There's difficulty, but he's always praising God and rejoicing by the time you get to the end. So we see that. We are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is... God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then we saw how we are to respond to the word of God. We are to not quench the spirit. We are not to press down the work of the spirit through the word of God in our lives. We're not to do that. And we are not to extinguish that work by putting it out. You see, the spirit leads us, but he won't drag us. He convicts us, but we can say no to that. We're not to do that. We're to allow the spirit of God to the word of God to graciously lead us. And as we've seen in the book of Romans, those who are his are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. They're shooting them down as those thoughts come up in your head. No, that's not right. No, that's sinful. Or when I yield to it, Lord, I'm sorry, it's wrong. We humble ourselves before him. We're to not quench the spirit of God. But then we also saw we are to not despise prophetic utterances. At this time, there was still prophecy as the scriptures were being compiled, brought forth, as the letters were being written. There wasn't the completed word of God. They were to not despise the word of God. They were not to disregard or reject the word of God. But instead, in contrast, they were to examine or test everything carefully. They were to have discernment, knowing how to test that and understand And they were to then abstain or to hold on to everything that is good. Grasp it. Don't let go of it. As you discern from the Word of God what is good, you hold on to it. And then abstain or stay away from every form of evil, not just the little forms of evil. The church has a real good way of saying this is evil, this is evil, this is evil. And yeah, it is. But they don't see the other things as evil, like anger, unforgiveness, all that other stuff that we need to deal with. Abstain from every form of evil stay away be discerning and then we saw that the lord god does this it's his work in us we can't do this it's the lord god that sanctifies us completely and will bring us to that completion he will complete the work that he began because he's a faithful god faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass he's a faithful god he's going to complete the work He is wonderfully working on each and every one of us. And so from this point, we come to the final words that Paul has in this letter to the Thessalonian church. Let's look at it. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, some teachers and preachers say, Amen, go to lunch, right? (laughs) The reality is, no, there's more to it than that. These commands are very important. Yes, they seem to be quite simple, but there's much to it that we need to understand if you look at the rest of Scripture in relationship to what Paul is saying here. We understand the Apostle Paul is giving some short commands, but they have implications that go much beyond that shortness, as we would say. Now, as I read that, did you notice something? Something repeated. Brethren, right? Brethren, three times. Now, Paul has used the term in 1 Thessalonians, brethren, 18 times. 18 times. He is speaking to believers here in Thessalonica. The brethren, brethren. They are those who have been convicted of their sin. They have turned to Jesus Christ, believing in him and his work on the cross as sufficient to cover their sin and bring forgiveness. They're believers. Remember, he began by sharing his thankfulness for their work of faith, their labor of love in chapter 1, their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so thankful that they responded to the fully convicting word of God by the power of the Spirit. And that transformation everyone saw, and it was broadcast throughout. These Thessalonians received the word of God in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and they became mimics of Paul and Silas and Timothy and examples to other believers. Tremendous reality. These idolaters had turned to God from their idolatry to wait for his son from heaven, Lord Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so he says, brethren, now the reality is when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you enter into a brand new relationship with the living God. A relationship in which we become his children, and thus we become brothers and sisters of one another in the family of God, the highest family there is. We know in 1 John chapter 3 that it is so tremendous, God's love for us, 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, now it's called by him, by the way, children of God, and such we are. And for that reason, the world doesn't know us, right? The world doesn't know us. John brought this forth in John chapter 1. But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And he says how that happened. Even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You trust in him. You become a child of God, the tremendous privilege, and we are brothers and sisters. And so these commands, brethren, 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 right? And notice there's a few things here also. Verse 26, greet all the brethren. Verse 27, the end of it, all the brethren. There's an implication that the brethren are together. That they are together. All the brethren. There's not a few brethren straggling out over there that don't come to church. They're together. The ones who are saved are together they're together. Greet all the brethren, as we're going to see. Have it read to all the brethren. So then, this is for believers. And so what does he say? What's his first command in these last that we see here? He says, brethren, pray for us. Now, who is the us here? It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's who chapter 1, verse 1 says is bringing this forth. Paul writes the letter, but he is with Silas and Timothy, faithful ministry companions. He says, pray for us. You remember Silas and Paul were put in jail just a while before, weren't they? They are put in jail, right? And run out. There's a hostile environment out there, as we'll see, to those who shared the gospel. He says, pray for us. And this is significant because when someone asks for prayer, they're acknowledging their inability to take care of the circumstance. And that's the way we should be all the time, pray without ceasing, right? But the Apostle Paul has been sharing examples throughout this book of his dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ, that only the Lord saves, that Paul wasn't the means in which people were saved, that the Lord saves. Look back in chapter 1 where he talks and he prays here concerning the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, by God his choice of you, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Hey, we're constantly thanking God. Paul's a man of prayer. We're constantly thanking God. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Look at what he says there. He says, and for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men. And who were those men? That was Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? He says, I'm thankful you didn't take it as our word. It's God's word, right? He says, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Tremendous. Then look at chapter 3, verse 12. He says, and may the Lord cause you to increase. Each chapter, we see a prayer, basically. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, another prayer. And then what do we see just before our passage? Look back in verse 23 in chapter 5, just before our passage. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass the apostle paul is a man of prayer and he's praying for these thessalonians but yet he not only prays for them he asks at the end of this letter for prayer from them the apostle paul recognized that god was the only one that could do what needed to be done that god was the only way that it was through god that anything that would be accomplished as we'll see would be done by his power and strength and not paul's he says, brethren, pray for us. Now, again, what's prayer? It's simply communication with the living God. We can boldly come before his throne. We can come into his presence at any time. The only thing that will hinder that is sin. Psalm 66, David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, it means I'm keeping it there. I'm not confessing it. The Lord doesn't hear. What about 1 Peter 3, 7 about husbands? Hey, you know, you better be functioning right with your wife lest your prayers are hindered, Right? you got sin, it's going to hinder your relationship with the Lord. So he says here that, brethren, pray for us. Now, remember, we saw earlier in the chapter that we are to pray without ceasing, didn't we? We saw that back in verse 17. We're to continually be praying. We're to continually be praying. Now, Jesus himself, God in human flesh, exhibited a lifestyle of dependence on the Father, didn't he? He is our example in that sense. And he was a man in his humanity of prayer. Remember Mark chapter 1 verse 35? And in the morning while it was still dark, he arose, speaking of Jesus, and went out and departed to a lonely place and he was praying there. God in human flesh praying, revealing his dependence on the Father. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. They're looking for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. What was Jesus doing? Everyone's looking for him, but he's praying. In the book of Acts, the early church was continually devoted to prayer, weren't they? Acts 1.14, and they were of one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Acts 2.42, and they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. So Paul says in our passage, pray for us. Now, what's his desire? What's his request? Pray for us for what? What, Paul? What do you want us to pray for? Just a general sense. I pray for Paul. I don't know what he wants. What does Paul want them to pray for? What's the implication within the book that we've seen, but also within what we see in scripture? What is he asking for their prayer for? Well, we can look at some of his other requests, which give us some insight probably into what he is asking here and what we need to be praying for in regards to our leaders and those who give you the word of God. Turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans 15, and we'll look at some of these prayers of Paul, these requests, more specifically requests for prayer, which might give us insight into what he is desiring from these Thessalonians. Romans 15, verse 30, and notice the dependence on the Lord in this. Romans 15, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together With me in your prayers to God for me. Strive in your prayers together with me in your prayers for me. And what does he say? That I might be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. First of all, protect me from those who don't have faith, right? Those Jews, right? And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Hey, that this would be acceptable so that I may come to you by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you. Amen. Hey, protect me, Lord God, and help me to accomplish your will so that I can minister to them. You see, that's what he's saying. What about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We see another request for prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, finally, brethren... Pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Notice he recognizes who's the one that delivers. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Pray for us that we'll be delivered, but he comforts them. He'll protect you, right? The reality is there are threats to those who bring you the Word of God. If you think there's no spiritual warfare for those who bring you the Word of God, you are sorely mistaken. Even within our own lives, there's a battle, right? There's a battle to trust Jesus, right? There's the temptations. We have an enemy like Aurora seeking someone to devour. He prowls about. Take a look. What about Colossians chapter 4? We have another request, a pretty significant one. Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. Hey, don't be falling asleep. Yeah, we do fall asleep at night, yes, but when you're praying, it's an important thing. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time, notice what he says, for us as well. Praying. And notice what he says, that God may open up a door for the word so that we may speak for the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. This is quite amazing what he says here. He is revealing here his total dependence on the Lord. He's asking for prayer because he's saying it won't happen unless God intervenes. And that's the reality of prayer.